Anthony Oliveri. So, you know, anybody can write a story or produce a documentary about the greatest team ever in the NBA, like, you know, the last dance. But it takes a special kind of talent to write a great story about the worst team ever. We could call this the worst dance. Take us back to January of 73. So it was January 15th of 1973. The Sixers season was long over. They were playing the Kansas City Omaha Kings. They were getting blown out and the Kings led by as many as 41 points in that game. There was a 76ers forward named John Q. Trapp who was sitting on the bench in the second half. Trapp was sitting there in his full warm-up. You know, he resigned to this role as a spectator. He had been benched at halftime, and he held a big cup in his hand. So Trapp leans over to a teammate that's sitting next to him named John Block, another big man on the team. He says, hey, want any of my coke? So before he could answer, another teammate leaned over and says, you don't want that cup. And so the obvious question is why? And it turned out when I interviewed Block uh, for this story, now 50 years later, Block says there was bourbon in the cup. He was drinking a bourbon and Coke on the bench. Block says John Q. Trapp was drinking bourbon and Coke on the bench. Yes, And that's frowned upon. Apparently, even in the 1970s, that was frowned upon, yes. So here's this guy, John Q. Trapp. He's in his warm-up. They're down by 41 points. He's holding a cup. He's sipping his bourbon. And this is what I could tell you about the 1972, 73, 76ers. That was the least of their problems that season. There have been disappointing teams. There have been bad teams. And then there are the 1972-73 Philadelphia 76ers. A team so bad that they didn't even reach double figures in victories. A team that had not one, not two, but three losing streaks of 13 games or longer. A team that didn't even have a process to trust. And the Sixers' performance on the court was just one element of their atrociousness. So today, 50 years after Philly set an enduring standard for hoops ignominy, Anthony Oliveri takes us inside the worst NBA season ever played. I'm Jeremy Schapp. It's Monday, July 10th. This is ESPN Daily. Delicious meat, nutritious. In the snack that packs of real protein punch, wonderful pistachios, one of the highest protein nuts out there. Each one ounce serving has six grams of protein, giving you over 10% of your daily value. Trust me, I've been eating them like there's no tomorrow all week. Wonderful pistachios also come in a variety of flavors and sizes, perfect for enjoying with your family and friends or taking them with you on the go. And you, like me, are on the go a lot taking the kids to school, hopping from meeting to meeting, shopping for groceries, whatever it may be. Well, the good news is not only are wonderful pistachios a complete protein providing all nine essential amino acids, 
They're also great for all your adventures. So whether you're a pistachio purist who loves cracking open every nut or you prefer the convenience of no-shells pistachios, Wonderful Pistachios has got you covered. Grab Wonderful Pistachios and elevate your snack game today. Visit WonderfulPistachios.com to learn more. Anthony Oliveri, before we really get into the nitty-gritty about the 1972-73 Sixers and their historic awfulness, for people who weren't around to see up close just how terrible this team was, give us a little context. Tell us exactly what made these 76ers so putrid. Well, I don't even think the numbers could do it justice, but, you know, there are some bad numbers. There's a 15-game losing streak to start the season, a 20-game losing streak to end it, 13-game losing streak in the middle. They're the worst team on offense, the worst team on defense, and the 9-73 and record still stands today as the worst record in an 82-game NBA season. From soup to nuts, this team was a team that was not prepared to win in the NBA. You have the combination of three things. You have a rookie coach who had no NBA experience before and none after. You had a completely stripped-down roster after the trade of Wilt Chamberlain uh, several years before. And you had ownership that seemingly had no interest in improving anything. But more than the actual wins and losses, there was a lot of stories about just the knowing nods between them when they would go on the court knowing that they had no chance to win. That's the big thing about this team. Not just know that you're on a bad team, a team that's not going to make the playoffs, but you're on a team that literally has no chance. You know, Philadelphia's got a very proud basketball history. The Warriors with Will Chamberlain, then the 76ers with Will Chamberlain. 67, they win the NBA title. This is just a few years later. How did it all fall apart so quickly? It really all traces back to the ownership situation. Uh, Irv Kozloff and Ike Richmond. Ike Richmond, he was a hands-on basketball guy. He was a very close friend of Will Chamberlain. He, at one time, was Chamberlain's personal lawyer. And so this is how the story and the legend goes, that he had promised Chamberlain an ownership stake in the team. Ike Richmond died, actually, of a heart attack at a Sixers-Celtics game at Boston Garden. He died while the game was going on. And when he passed away, his partner, uh, Irv Kozloff, reportedly didn't recognize what was a verbal agreement. So that started the process of Wilt being very unhappy with his time in Philadelphia. And slowly, it devolved to where he was traded for, I don't know if you want to even call it 40 cents on the dollar at that time. That started a slow process of you had four Hall of Famers, Wilt Chamberlain being one of them. He was traded. Chet Walker was traded to Chicago. Billy Cunningham eventually landed in the ABA. And the last Hall of Famer was Hal Greer, who was nearing the end of his career, Essentially, those four Hall of Famers were taken off the roster. And then Jack Ramsey, who was a Hall of Fame coach, he left to go to the Buffalo Braves. So you have a strong ownership partnership that's been halved. You have a stripped down roster and you have a Hall of Fame coach who's no longer there. As one person told me as I was reporting this, that's a recipe for a disaster. You know, it had been Jack Ramsey uh, who is, as you said, a Hall of Fame coach, our late colleague, Jack Ramsey. Before that, Alex Hannum, another Hall of Fame coach. Before that, 
dating back to when they were still in Syracuse, Dolph Shays, a Hall of Fame player. So who are they going to find uh, as the successor to this string of Hall of Famers who have been their head coaches? Of course, it would make sense. A team that had only missed the playoffs one time the year before this 1972-73 season, it would make sense that they then would find a coach from Division II Long Island University who had never coached in the NBA. His name was Roy Rubin. Rubin arrived, uh, like I said, with no experience in the NBA, but a lot of thoughts on how things in the NBA should be run. And he was found by an ad in the Philadelphia Inquirer. So an ad in the Philadelphia Inquirer, the big broadsheet in Philadelphia, is it a publicity stunt or are they actually, you know, turning to classified advertising the help wanted, I should say, section of the newspaper to find their next head coach to succeed Jack Ramsey. No, as, as far as I could tell, it was a serious <laughs> attempt to get That's uh, an NBA coach through an advertisement That's in a newspaper. Right. This was <laughs> reportedly after many big name coaches, Adolph Ruff being one of them, uh, turned down the opportunity to coach this team. Um, and so a stockbroker in New York named Jules Love, who knew the owner, um, calls him up and says, I have a man for you. His name is Roy Rubin. He coaches at LIU. And before you know it, Roy Rubin had a three-year contract to coach the Sixers. Rubin had been a successful high school coach in New York City. Uh, So he had somewhat of a name locally on the East Coast and definitely New York City. And he also had success with, with LIU. But at that point, you would think that someone like Ruben would get nowhere near uh, a team who had just won the NBA championship uh, six years prior. So this stockbroker who knows Irv Kozlov calls him, says, hey, I've got just the guy for you. And management says, oh, you're right. Let's let's <laughs> Ruben if that's the way it goes. Like I said before, like <laughs> Irv, Irv Kozlov was not a basketball guy. So he was talked into some of these things by the people underneath him, it seems. You would think that, you know, taking advice from a stockbroker who's reading the Help Wanted ad in, uh, you know, the Philadelphia Inquirer, you know, you would think even that would stop someone um, who doesn't have basketball experience. I mean, right from training camp, the players were looking at each other and saying, I'm not sure exactly if, you know, what's going on here. Dennis Autre, who was a six foot ten center in his third season, he only spent three games with the Sixers at the start of the 1972-73 season before he was traded. But the memory sticks in his mind of heading into training camp. He's talking to Roy Rubin and Rubin says, OK, for an offseason workout, just play full court one on one for 48 minutes and you should be in shape for the season. Now, again, this was the 1970s, but you would think that the workouts would be a little bit more uh, sophisticated than that, right? So when those things start happening, the players start to realize that he was in over his head. And Fred Carter, the leading scorer on the team, says to me, quote, he wasn't kind of in over his head. He was in over his head. John Block said something similar, saying that, you know, he was a nice guy, but he really, really had a hard time coaching, which is a problem when you're the head coach of an NBA team. If you're talking about the 9-73 and Sixers, if you want to say it in one sentence, you could say that the first head coach during that season, Roy Rubin, 
coached them to a 4-48 record, and then left to run an IHOP in Florida. He was run out of basketball, basically, after this. Yeah, he, he was run out of basketball into the pancake business. <laughs> so you mentioned that uh, they did not get off to an auspicious start. How did it all unfold at the beginning? Well, there was a 15-game losing streak to start the season, and about a month into the season, the Sixers won their first game. Um, So John Block recounts this story. He had scored a a game-high 31 points in that game. Uh, So they win a a close two-point game against the Houston Rockets, and Block remembers Ruben celebrating the win by leaping from his seat on the bench, and according to Block, quote, tore his hamstrings and fell, just crumpled to the floor because he was so excited to win his first NBA game. At that point, Ruben has his first NBA win, and if you look at it from the 30,000-foot view, he then would only win three more ever. So they're very bad. That's very clear. But they make a decision. They say, we are going to make a change, and this should redirect the team. What, what happens to Ruben? Yeah, so during the All-Star break, what that at that time was in late January, uh, a change is made, and Ruben is replaced by Kevin Lockery, who was an injured player at the time, and he technically became an, an, a player coach. But Lockery was involved with the Players Association. He was in Chicago for the All-Star game. He says he got a call at 1 o'clock in the morning from the general manager, uh, and the GM asked if he wanted to be the coach. He was shocked about it, but he said yes. And how did it go for Kevin Lockery? Actually, he wins five games, which is one more than Ruben won during his stint. But it was actually five wins in a seven-game period, including a win over the vaunted New York Knicks, who at the time uh, were in the midst of having some of their greatest teams in franchise history. So under Lockery, they are a much better team. Much better. Yeah, and Kevin Lockery would go on to win uh, ABA titles with the Nets. Um, so Lockery was actually a very good coach, and he still went 5-26 and 26 with that team. Coming up, the mysterious figure at the center of the worst team in NBA history. The NFL schedule drops this week, kiddos, and you can be there to catch all the action live and in person with Vivid Seats. Experience every touchdown, every tackle, and every eye-popping play of your favorite team. And to kick it off, Vivid Seats, the official ticketing partner of ESPN, is offering you $20 off your first $200 ticket purchase with code DAILY. That's code DAILY. Download the app or visit vividseats.com today. Vivid Seats. Experience it live. Shopping for Mother's Day is usually a challenge because you people wait until the last minute. But Macy's Gift Finder makes it incredibly fast and easy to find the right gift just in time for Mother's Day. Whether you're shopping for your sister's first one or for your fashionista mom who likes to make a statement, Macy's Gift Finder has so many great gift ideas that you can easily pick out something special to celebrate with them both. You can shop by price anywhere from 25 bucks and under to, say, 100 bucks and below. You can also sort by category, like fragrance, handbags, and more, or gift lists, like for the mom who has everything. 
or even pre-wrapped gifts for grandma. Find top brands like Studio Pro Model Beats headphones, Polaroid cameras, and Samsung smart TVs. So, what are you waiting for? Mother's Day is May 12th, and it'll be here before you know it. Macy's has the perfect gift guide to make picking something for mom easy this year. Head to Macy's.com slash gift finder today. That's Macy's.com slash gift finder. Anthony, you know, you look at the roster of this team, and 50 years later, a lot of these names are still very familiar to basketball fans. Kevin Lockery, Hal Greer, the Hall of Famer, Tom Van Arsdale, Fred Carter. There were guys on this roster who at one point in their careers had been excellent NBA players. For those guys to be part of this, this dumpster fire, what was that like? I think it was an experience that they'll never forget because, you know, more than the actual, obviously, right? But for several of these guys, you know, Fred Carter, who is the leading scorer on that team, he had been on a Baltimore Bullets team that was in the NBA Finals. It was almost a a culture shock for for many of these guys to to enter the game. And as, I think that's that's the big thing about this team. Not just know that you're on a bad team, a team that's not going to make the playoffs, but you're on a team that literally has no chance. Tom Van Arsdale, he was a three-time All-Star uh, who was traded to the Sixers on the day their record fell to 4-48. and His experience when he actually arrived in Philadelphia was, he said, most of us were embarrassed. We're all in the same boat. So what did we do? We stuck together. In your story, the guy who comes across to me as the most interesting, the most compelling character, is someone I have to admit I'd never heard the name before. And it's a great name. It's almost like you can't make it up. John Q. Trap, as you mentioned, the guy who's got bourbon with the Coke in the cup at the end of the bench on January 15th. What else can you tell us about John Q. Trap? So the interesting thing about Trap is he was traded to the Sixers at the beginning of that season. It was early November, and he comes from the Lakers. Now, the original trade was supposed to include Pat Riley instead of John Q. Trapp. Riley went on to become one of the greatest winners in the history of the NBA, right? But in the negotiation over the trade, they land on John Trapp instead of Pat Riley. And so Trapp has this reputation of being the type of guy that you want to walk to the other side of the street when you see him. This old-school NBA enforcer For, say, 90s Knicks fans, this Charles Oakley type, I do all the dirty work on the court type of player. Defense, rebounding, the whole thing. But I was told not the the happiest guy to be around, right? So you you take that personality and you take him from the 71-72 Lakers who won a championship, won 33 games in a row, and you put him on the 72-73-76ers, And it really wasn't a good mix at all. It makes perfect sense then. You're going from the world champions, one of the greatest teams ever, not just the world champions, but one of the greatest teams ever to the worst team ever. I would be drinking at the end of the bench too. Wouldn't you? No comment. But Trap had this way about him that already existed. So we don't want to say that the Sixers completely turned him sour. But what happened was that there were several players on that Sixers team that said, look, we understood the situation that we were in, right? We knew that we weren't going to win, so we we're going to make the best of our time here. Trap, according to what people tell me, Trap 
didn't really act that way. One incident that was in several written accounts about this season was Trap was being substituted out of the game by Roy Rubin. And uh, before the substitution could take place, Trap just kind of nods toward the stands and he has several friends or associates in the stands. And at least one of them opens up his coat to show a gun. And at that point, Trap stays in the game. So it shows you that he wasn't really a willing player. He didn't say, look, I'm just going to get through this situation. Uh, he made it worse. He eventually was cut in the middle of the season. There's a really poignant anecdote that Tom Van Arsdale told me. He remembers being on the bus when everybody climbs up on the bus and they're ready to go take another loss in another city. And he notices that John Q. Trapp isn't on the bus. And moments later, Lockery, who is the coach uh, by that time, hops on the bus and says... I just want to let all you guys know that that I cut John Q. Trap, And according to Van Arsdale, everybody on the bus stands up and, and claps and gives sort of this standing ovation. And that anecdote really spoke to me is, again, the premise of this story. You have the one person that wasn't living up to this ethos of let's stick together and we'll get through this. And that guy had to be removed and when he was removed, everybody was happy. Whatever happened to John Q. Trap? We don't know. And I can honestly say that I don't know because I talked to John Block, uh, who was the guy that was offered the cup of bourbon uh, on the bench. And Block says mm -hmm. that he heard that Trapped worked security at a Las Vegas casino. And from what Block heard, that Trap had died of a heart attack while he was the casino employee. Uh, and I says, were you at his funeral? Like, did, you know, who did you hear this from? And he couldn't remember. So uh, I went on, you know, emailing the colleges that he played for. He played for three different colleges, Pasadena City College. They got back to me and the sports information director at the school wrote in an email. He said, I'm almost positive that he died. For whatever reason, it's become a mystery on the Internet. I contact UNLV. UNLV says that they have him as deceased in their records. But then I'm told that the person who keeps those records isn't sure that that's accurate. He went to another another college, which is now Voorhees University, and um, they had no idea. The NBA Retired Players Association, they weren't able to help either. The Sixers couldn't help. Uh, I didn't hear back from the Lakers, but essentially no one could tell me where John Q. Trapp was or if he was alive or dead. Wait, 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 wait hold on, hold on. But uh, so we're talking, we're not talking about a guy who had a cup of coffee. We're talking about a guy who was a contributor to one of the greatest teams ever, that 72 Lakers championship team. And there is no trace of him over the last 40 years, basically. Well, if, if someone who's listening to this wants to let us know, that would be great. But what but if he's other listening? Than yeah, he, 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 he might be. Um, and, Do we have and so a number it, to give out? Please call us. <laughs> so, Anthony, you know, when we think about the worst teams ever in sports, we think about the 62 Mets. We think about the Tampa Bay Buccaneers that went 0-14 under John McKay. There was a Lions team and there was a Browns team that both went 0-16. Correct me if I'm wrong. 
What is the legacy of the nine and 73, 1973 Philadelphia 76ers? The legacy is, let's get it out of the way, possibly an unbreakable record for a team that's not tanking, that um, is not doing this on purpose. Just to completely strip down a team to such bare bones that they had no direction whatsoever and they were just incapable of winning. It would be unfair of us, Anthony, if we did not give Michael Jordan's Charlotte Bobcats, the 2011-2012 Charlotte Bobcats, that, that he was the majority owner of, their proper due. Isn't that right? Right. As if Michael Jordan doesn't have enough accolades, right? He, his 2011-12 Charlotte <laughs> Bobcats uh, actually had a worse winning percentage than the 72-73 Sixers. They had 59 losses in 66 games during a lockout-shortened season. But... Uh, as as one person who I talked to for the story told me, uh, if if you really wanna if you really wanna do it, do it in eighty two games. Anthony Oliveri, an expert on the art of losing, and the worst team ever. Anthony, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Jeremy. I'm Jeremy Schapp. This has been ESPN Daily. We'll talk to you tomorrow.